Chapter Four of A Popular History of Ireland, Book Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. A Popular History of Ireland From the Earliest Period to the Emancipation of the Catholics, Book Three, by Thomas Darcy McGee. Chapter Four state of religion and learning among the irish previous to the anglo-norman invasion at the end of the eighth century before entering on the norwegian and danish wars we cast a backward glance on the christian ages over which we have passed and now again we have arrived at the close of an era when a rapid retrospect of the religious and social condition of the country requires to be taken the disorganization of the ancient Celtic constitution has already been sufficiently described. The rise of the great families, and their struggles for supremacy, have also been briefly sketched. The substitution of the clan for the race, of pedigree for patriotism, has been exhibited to the reader. We have now to turn to the inner life of the people, and to ascertain what substitutes they found in their religious and social condition for the absence of a fixed constitutional system, and the strength and stability which such a system confers. The followers of Odin, though they made no proselytes to their horrid creed among the children of St. Patrick, succeeded in inflicting many fatal wounds on the Irish church. The schools, monasteries, and nunneries, situated on harbors or rivers, or within a convenient march of the coast, were their first objects of attack. Teachers and pupils were dispersed, or, if taken, put to death, or, escaping, were driven to resort to arms in self-defense. Bishops could no longer reside in their sees, nor anchorites in their cells, unless they invited martyrdom, a fact which may, perhaps, in some degree account for the large number of Irish ecclesiastics, many of them in Episcopal orders, who are found in the ninth century, in Gaul and Germany, at Reims, Mentz, Ratisbon, Fulda, Cologne, and other places, already Christian. But it was not in the banishment of masters, the destruction of libraries and school buildings, the worst consequences of the Gentile war were felt. Their ferocity provoked retaliation in kind, and effaced, first among the military class, and gradually from among all others, that growing gentleness of manners and clemency of temper which we can trace in such princes as neil of the showers and neil of callan a change in the national spirit is the greatest of all revolutions and this change the danish and norwegian wars had wrought in two centuries among the irish the number of bishops in the early irish church was greatly in excess of the number of modern dioceses from the 8th to the 12th century, we hear frequently of Episcopi Vagantis, or itinerant, and Episcopi Vacantis, or unbeneficed bishops. The provincial synods of England and Gaul frequently had to complain of the influx of such bishops into their country. At the synod held near the hill of Usney, in the year 1111, fifty bishops attended, and at the synod of Rath Brazil, seven years later, according to Keating, but twenty-five were present. To this period, then, when Celsus was primate and legate of the Holy See, 
we may attribute the first attempted reduction of the episcopal body to something like its modern number. But so far was this salutary restriction from being universally observed, that at the Synod of Kells, A.D. 1152, the hierarchy had again risen to thirty-four, exclusive of the four archbishops. Three hundred priests and three thousand ecclesiastics are given as the number present at the first-mentioned synod. The religious orders, probably represented by the above proportion of three thousand ecclesiastics to three hundred secular priests, had also undergone a remarkable revolution. The rule of all the early Irish monasteries and convents was framed upon an original constitution, which St. Patrick had obtained in France from St. Martin of Tours, who, in turn, had copied after the monachism of Egypt and the East. It is called by ecclesiastical writers the Columban rule, and was more rigid in some particulars than the rule of St. Benedict, by which it was afterwards supplanted. Among other restrictions, it prohibited the admission of all unprofessed persons within the precincts of the monastery, a law as regards females incorporated in the Benedictine constitution and it strictly enjoined silence on the professed, a discipline revived by the brethren of La Trappe. The primary difference between the two orders lay perhaps in this, that the Benedictine made study in the cultivation of the intellect subordinate to manual labor and implicit obedience, while the Columban order attached more importance to the acquisition of knowledge and missionary enterprise. Not that this was their invariable, but only their peculiar characteristic, a deep-seated love of seclusion and meditation often intermingled with this fearless and experimental zeal. It was not to be expected in a century like the ninth, especially when the Benedictine order was overspreading the West, that its milder spirit should not act upon the spirit of the Columban rule. It was, in effect, more social and less scientific, more a wisdom to be acted than to be taught. Armed with the syllogism, the Columbites issued out of their remote island, carrying their strongly marked personality into every controversy and every correspondence. In Germany and Gaul, their system blazed up in Virgilius, in Origina, in Macarius, and then disappeared in the calmer, slower, but safer march of the Benedictine discipline. By a reform of the same ancient order, its last hold on native soil was loosened, when, under the auspices of St. Malachy, the Cistercian rule was introduced into Ireland the very year of his first visit to Clairvaux, A.D. 1139. St. Mary's Abbey, Dublin, was the first to adopt that rule, and the great monastery of Mellifont, placed under the charge of the brother of the primate, sprung up in Meath three years later. The abbeys of Bective, Boyle, Baltinglass, and Monasternana date from the year of Malachy's second journey to Rome, and death at Clairvaux, A.D. 1148. Before the end of the century, the rule was established at Fermoy, Holy Cross, and Adorni, at Athlone and Knockmoy, at Newry and Assaro, and in almost every tribeland of Meath and Leinster. It is usually but erroneously supposed that the Cistercian rule came in with the Normans, for although many houses owed their foundation to that race, the order itself had been naturalized in Ireland a generation before the first landing of the formidable allies of Dermid on the coast of Wexford. 
the ancient native order had apparently fulfilled its mission, and, long rudely lopped and shaken by civil commotions and pagan war, it was prepared to give place to a new and more vigorous organization of kindred holiness and energy. As the horrors of war disturbed continually the clergy from their sacred calling, and led many of them, even abbots and bishops, to take up arms, so the yoke of religion gradually loosened and dropped from the necks of the people. The awe of the eighth century for a priest or bishop had already disappeared in the tenth, when Christian hands were found to decapitate Cormac of Cashel, and offer his head as a trophy to the Ard Ri. In the twelfth century, the archbishop and bishops of Connaught, bound to the synod of Trim, were fallen upon by the kern of Carbury the Swift, before they could cross the Shannon, their people beaten and dispersed, and two of them killed. In the time of Thorlo Moore O'Connor, a similar outrage was offered by Tiernan O'Rourke to the Archbishop of Armagh, and one of his ecclesiastics was killed in the assault. Not only for the persons of ministers of religion had the ancient awe and reverence disappeared, but even for the sacred precincts of the sanctuary. In the second century of the war with the Northmen, we begin to hear of churches and cloisters plundered by native chiefs, who yet called themselves Christians, though in every such instance our analysts are careful to record the vengeance of heaven following swift on sacrilege. Clonmacnoise, Kildare, and Lismore were more than once rifled of their wealth by impious hands, and given over to desolation and burning by so-called Christian nobles and soldiers. It is some mitigation of the dreadful record thus presented to be informed, as we often are, especially in the annals of the twelfth century, that the treasures so pillaged were not the shrines of saints, nor the sacred ornaments of the altar, but the temporal wealth of temporal proprietors, laid up in churches as places of greatest security. The estates of the church were, in most instances, farmed by laymen, called Aranax, who, in the relaxation of all discipline, seemed to have gradually appropriated the lands to themselves, leaving to the clergy and bishops only periodical dues in the actual enclosure of the church. This office of Aranac was hereditary, and must have presented many strong temptations to its occupants. It is indeed certain that the Irish church was originally founded on the broadest voluntaryism, and that such was the spirit of all its most illustrious fathers. Content with food and raiment, says an ancient canon attributed to St. Patrick, reject the gifts of the wicked beside, seeing that the lamb takes only that with which it is fed. Such, to the letter, was the maxim which guided the conduct of Coleman and his brethren, of whom Bede makes such honorable mention, in the third century after the preaching of St. Patrick. But the munificence of tribes and princes was not to be restrained, and to obviate any violation of the revered canons of the apostle, laymen, as treasurers and stewards over the endowments of the church, were early appointed. As those possessions increased, the desire of family aggrandizement proved too much for the Aranax, not only of Armagh, but of most other sees, and left the clergy as practically dependent on free-will offerings, as if their cathedrals or convents had never been endowed with an acre, a mill, a ferry, or a fishery. The free offerings were, however, always generous, and sometimes munificent. 
when Celsus, on his elevation to the primacy, made a tour of the southern half-kingdom, he received seven cows and seven sheep, and half an ounce of silver from every cantred, hundred, in Munster. The bequests were also a fruitful source of revenue to the principal foundations. Of the munificence of the monarchs, we may form some opinion by what has been already recorded of the gifts left to churches by Thorlow Moore O'Connor. The power of the clerical order, in these ages of pagan warfare, had very far declined from what it was, when Adam Nan caused the law to be enacted to prevent women going to battle, when Moling obtained the abolition of the Leinster tribute, and Columkill the recognition of Scottish independence. Truces made in the presence of the highest dignitaries, and sworn to on the most sacred relics, were frequently violated, and often with impunity. Neither excommunication nor public penance were latterly inflicted as an atonement for such perjury. A fine or offering to the church was the easy and only mulct on the offender. When we see the safeguard of the Bishop of Cork, so flagrantly disregarded by the assassins of Mahone, son of Kennedy, and the solemn peace of the year 1094, so readily broken by two such men as the princes of the North and the South, we need no other proofs of the decadence of the spiritual authority in that age of Irish history. And the morals of private life tell the same sad tale. The facility with which the marriage tie was contracted and dissolved is the strongest evidence of this degeneracy. The worst examples were set in the highest stations, for it is no uncommon incident, from the ninth century downwards, to find our princes with more than one wife living, and the repudiated wife married again to a person of equal or superior rank. We have the authority of St. Anselm and St. Bernard for the existence of grave scandal and irregularities of life among the clergy, and we can well believe that it needed a generation of bishops, with all the authority and all the courage of St. Celsus, St. Malachy, and St. Lawrence, to rescue from ruin a priesthood and a people so far fallen from the bright example of their ancestors. That the reaction towards a better life had strongly set in, under their guidance, we may infer from the horror with which, in the third quarter of the twelfth century, the elopement of Dermot and Dervergoil was regarded by both princes and people. A hundred years earlier, that event would have been hardly noticed in the general disregard of the marriage tie, but the frequent synods and the holy lives of the reforming bishops had already revived the zeal that precedes and ensures reformation. Primate Malachy died at Clairvaux, in the arms of St. Bernard, in the year 1148, after having been fourteen years Archbishop of Armagh, and ten years Bishop of Down and Connor. His episcopal life, therefore, embraced the history of that remarkable second quarter of the century, in which the religious reaction fought its finest battles against the worst abuses. The attention of St. Bernard, whose eyes nothing escaped, from Jerusalem to the farthest west, was drawn ten years before to the Isle of Saints, now, in truth, become an isle of sinners. The death of his friend, the Irish primate, under his own roof, gave him a fitting occasion for raising his accusing voice, a voice that thrilled the Alps and filled the Vatican, against the fearful degeneracy of that once fruitful mother of holy men and women. The attention of Rome was thoroughly aroused, 
and immediately after the appearance of the life of St. Malachy, Pope Eugenius III, himself a monk of Clairvaux, dispatched Cardinal Papyron with legantine powers to correct abuses, and establish a stricter discipline. After a tour of the great part of the island, the legate, with whom was associated Gila Creost, or Christianus, Bishop of Lismore, called the Great Synod of Kells, early in the year after his arrival, March 1152, at which simony, usury, concubinage, and other abuses were formally condemned, and tithes were first decreed to be paid to the secular clergy. Two new archbishoprics, Dublin and Tuam, were added to Armagh and Cashel, though not without decided opposition from the primates, both of Leith Maga and Leith Con, backed by those stern conservatives of every national usage, the abbots of the Columban order. The pallium, or Roman cape, was, by this legate, presented to each of the archbishops, and a closer conformity with the Roman ritual was enacted. The four ecclesiastical provinces thus created were, in outline, nearly identical with the four modern provinces. Armagh was declared the metropolitan over all. Dublin, which had been a mere Danish borough see, gained most in rank and influence by the new arrangement, as Glendalock, Ferns, Ossory, Kildare, and Leland were declared subject to its presidency. We must always bear in mind the picture drawn of the Irish Church by the inspired orator of Clairvaux, when judging of the conduct of Pope Adrian the Fourth, who, in the year 1155, the second of his pontificate, granted to King Henry the Second of England, then newly crowned, his bull authorizing the invasion of Ireland. The authenticity of that bull is now universally admitted, and both its preamble and conditions show how strictly it was framed in accordance with St. Bernard's accusation. It sets forth that, for the eradication of vice, the implanting of virtue, and the spread of the true faith, the Holy Father solemnly sanctions the projected invasion, and it attaches as a condition the payment of Peter's pence for every house in Ireland. The bearer of the bull, John of Salisbury, carried back from Rome a gold ring, set with an emerald stone, as a token of Adrian's friendship, or, it may be, his sub-infudation of Henry. As a title, however powerless in modern times such a bull might prove, it was a formidable weapon of invasion with the Catholic people in the twelfth century. We have mainly referred to it here, however, as an illustration of how entirely St. Bernard's impeachment of the Irish Church and nation was believed at Rome, even after the salutary decrees of the Synod of Kells had been promulgated. The restoration of religion, which was making such rapid progress previous to the Norman invasion, was accompanied by a relative revival of learning. The Dark Ages of Ireland are not those of the rest of Europe. They extend from the middle of the ninth century to the age of Brian and Malachy II. This darkness came from the north, and cleared away rapidly after the eventful day of Clontarf. The first and most natural direction which the revival took was historical investigation, and the composition of annals. Of these invaluable records, the two of highest reputation are those of Tiernach, are those of Tiernach, Tiernan, O'Broin, brought down to the year of his own death, A.D. 1088, and the chronicle of Marianus Scotus, who died at Mintz, A.D. 1086. 
Tiernan was avid of Clan MacNoise, and Marion is thought to have been a monk of that monastery, as he speaks of a superior called Tiernach, under whom he had lived in Ireland. Both these learned men quote accurately the works of foreign writers. Both give the dates of eclipses, in connection with historical events, for several centuries before their own time. Both show a familiarity with Greek and Latin authors. Marianus is the first writer by whom the name Scotia Minor was given to the Gaelic settlement in Caledonia, and his chronicle was an authority mainly relied on in the disputed Scottish succession in the time of Edward I of England. With Tiernach, he may be considered the founder of the school of Irish analysts, which flourished in the shelter of the great monasteries, such as Innisfallen, Boyle, and Multifernan, and culminated in the great compilation made by the Four Masters in the Abbey of Donegal. Of the Gaelic metrical chroniclers, Flan of the Monastery and Gillacoman, of the Bards MacLiag and McCoys, of the learned professors and lectors of Lismore and Armagh, now restored for a season to studious days and peaceful nights, we must be content with the mention of their names. Of Lismore, after its restoration, an old British writer has left us this pleasant and happy picture. It is, he says, a famous and holy city, half of which is an asylum, into which no woman dares enter. But it is full of cells and monasteries, and religious men in great abundance abide there. Such was the promise of better days, which cheered the hopes of the pastors of the Irish, when the twelfth century had entered on its third quarter. The pious old Gaelic proverb, which says, On the cross the face of Christ was looking westwards, was again on the lips and in the hearts of men, and though much remained to be done, much had been already done, and done under difficulties greater than any that remained to conquer. End of chapter 4